Hello, and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 98, St. Paschal I. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Hey everyone, today's Pope St. Paschal I was like the last couple of popes brought up in the school at the Lateran Basilica, where he was recognized as an expert in chanting the texts of Scripture. He was ordained a subdeacon and later a priest and assigned by Pope St. Leo III to the Monastery of St. Stephen, which is today the Church of the Ethiopian Catholics in the Vatican. At the sudden death of Stephen IV, St. Paschal was elected, most likely the very next day. And his papacy began in a similar way to Stephen IV, if you will remember from last week. He immediately sent letters to Louis the Pious, letting him know of his election. Then it was smoothly done, and it was canonical. And then Louis sent a document to Paschal, which seems to have been the same agreement worked out with Pope Stephen IV the year before, outlining how the relationship between the Franks and the papacy, and what territory belonged to whom, and how papal elections should go, etc. Paschal seems to have maintained a good relationship with the Frankish emperors, but certainly did all he could to make sure they knew that the Pope was spiritually above their temporal power. More on that later. Now, we didn't mention it before, but two weeks ago, during the reign of Pope St. Leo III, there was a resurgence of iconoclasm in the East, the heresy which forbade the use of religious images in worship. And the major voice fighting the heresy was one Theodore of Studium. Theodore wrote for help to St. Leo III and again wrote to St. Paschal. St. Paschal supported Theodore in his cause, sending messengers to the Byzantine emperor to try and convince him of his error. Many of the Orthodox monks from the East fled the iconoclastic persecution and found their way to Rome. So many monks, in fact, ended up in Rome that St. Paschal had to establish several new monasteries to house them all, including one at the beautiful Basilica of St. Cecilia in Trastevere. In fact, there's just a really cool story about St. Paschal's renovation of St. Cecilia's Basilica in 821, during the renovation of the Basilica, St. Paschal planned to move her relics to the church. He had made a project of translating relics from the catacombs to the various churches and chapels in Rome so that they could be protected and properly venerated. And when they went in search of the relics, however, they couldn't find them, and the assumption was that they had been stolen by Lombard raiders the century before. But St. Paschal had a dream in which St. Cecilia appeared to him and told him to keep looking. He wasn't too far off, and sure enough, he found the relics in a nearby catacomb. The relics were brought to the Basilica of St. Cecilia, and they remain there to this day. Now back to the Franks. In 817, the son of Louis the Pious, Lothair I, was appointed to be the co-emperor of the Franks, and he was given charge of the government of Frankish territory in Italy. In 823, he was invited to Rome by St. Paschal, who crowned him co-emperor on Easter Sunday. The goal seems to have been to continue to link the title of Holy Roman Emperor with the papal coronation. So you don't get the title, really, unless you've been crowned by the Pope. Louis Leo III had crowned the great Charlemagne in Rome, while Stephen IV had gone to France to crown Louis the Pious. So this third crowning seems to have set a precedent, one which elevated the papal role in determining the emperor. Now, if you want to be emperor, you have to go get crowned by the Pope. But despite this outward sign of good feelings, there seems to have been some continuing tension arising with the Franks, even within the papal bureaucracy. Some of the papal officials and other local nobles were pro-Frank and almost against the papacy. These tensions came to a head immediately after the departure of Lothair from Rome. Two of the most important and visible Frankish supporters, the Primacerius of Rome, a man named Theodore, and his son-in-law, Leo the Nomenclator, 
were both blinded and murdered in the Lateran Palace by papal supporters, members of a militia called the Family of St. Peter. Now, it was immediately suspected that St. Paschal had a hand in the murders, that he at least knew about them and consented to them, if not having ordered them himself. Louis the Pious decided, okay, we need to go check this out. So he sent emissaries to investigate, but St. Paschal sent his own to try and explain everything in advance. St. Paschal took an oath that he had nothing to do with the murders, which was a big deal back then, to take a public oath. But he also said... I have nothing to do with this. Those guys got what they deserved, so don't punish the people who did this. Now, it seems like this was enough for the emperor, who, though he ended up sending a delegation to Rome, he didn't intervene much more. The result of all this turmoil was that St. Paschal became very unpopular with the Roman people, so much so that upon his death, his burial was prevented until the election of his successor. He was eventually buried either in St. Peter's or in Santa Prisede, a basilica he totally renovated, and which still has a mosaic of him there today. St. Paschal I was succeeded by Pope Eugene II, and we will talk about him next week. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com. There you can donate too if you would like to, if you like our show and you want to help support us. You can also check out our other podcasts and find us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you and God bless you. <laughs>